Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James 1. And if you need a Bible, these guys have some, so get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you so you can follow along. As we look at James 1, continuing our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Real Faith, Genuine Faith, Authentic Faith. And as we will see and as we have seen, faith in your New Testament is belief. And so the theme of the book of James is to test whether or not what we say we believe is genuine, real, and authentic. Notice the verse that I have on the screen behind me. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, has anyone ever asked you that? Has anyone ever come to you and said, you know, you're different. There is, there is something different about you. You are marching to the beat of a different drummer. You're not like me. You're not like everybody else. And I would like to know what it is that makes you ticked. Did I say makes you ticked? I'll be talking about that in a minute too. But what makes you tick? You know, it's an assumption in the Bible that someone will ask us why it is that we're different from time to time. But that question will only be asked of us if we've been transformed by Jesus Christ. If the people who know us aren't curious about us, then perhaps it's because we're not showing anything different in our attitudes and in our words and in our actions. If you handle financial blessing, for instance, the same way that the world does, simply buying toys because you can afford them, then why should anybody ask you what makes you different? Or consider family relationships. Where does Jesus fit into our marriage and parenting struggles? If we talk about our spouses negatively or we just don't talk about them at all, we're showing the same low view of God's institution that the world has. If, when the going gets tough in our marriages, we decide we're going to opt out, whether emotionally or physically leaving or both, we're doing nothing different than the world does all the time. If our parenting priorities are like those of the world, why should anyone see a difference in us and then ask about it? For instance, you know the world sort of treats children like a valuable pet? You get one or two or three or whatever because of what it, he, she will do for you. I, I want a baby is not much different than I want a puppy. In fact, I want a particular type. I want a boy or I want a girl. If I don't get the one I want the first time, I might try again. If I have all boys and I wanted a girl or vice versa, I'll be somewhat sad because I didn't get what I want. I may determine the number simply based on my convenience. <laughs> One's enough. I can't handle more than two. 
Now, now hear this. There is wisdom to be exercised in determining the size of a family. But it is not to be based on the same criteria that the world uses. What type do I want? How many constitute a hassle for me? But we think this way because, like the world, children are for us. The children are for me. But friends, children are indeed a great blessing. But they are first and foremost about God and not you. So whether he gives me one or two or four or none, or whether they're male or female, God's purpose is still the same. For you to reflect his image back to him, and if he gives you children, for you to produce image bearers that will do likewise. If our schedules are consumed with what we like to do, and there's nothing in our schedules that are particularly missional, why would anyone ask about a difference in you? Since that's what everybody does. If we handle stress the same way as the world, then why in the world would anyone of the world be prompted to ask what makes you tick? If you get angry and bitter and you're joyless, how is that going to prompt anyone to see a difference? They won't be prompted to ask what makes you tick. They'll undoubtedly know what makes you tick. And the verse I have on the screen that assumes that if we're living for God and for His purposes, then people will see a difference and will be prompted to ask about the reason for the hope that's within you. It assumes that, but it starts this way. In your hearts, set apart, Christ is Lord. You see, whether I think and talk and live in a different way, one that would cause someone to ask about it, first of all, depends on what I believe about Jesus. To put it another way, if nobody's asking you that, then you don't believe Jesus is Lord. We say we do, but we don't live that way. Such that people would in turn then be prompted to say, what's different about you? If I really believe Jesus is Lord, then it will make a radical difference in my behavior. And so, do I believe Jesus is Lord? That he's my God. That he's my master. I sing about it on Sunday, but the question is, do I live like it on Monday? And if we ask the question, is Jesus Lord, to this crowd, in the abstract, the answer is yes. If I'm taking a theological exam and I'm asked to give titles for Jesus, Lord is probably going to be one of those titles. But God's exam is not on paper. It's in life. It's Monday through Saturday. And the question is, is Jesus Lord in my circumstances and is Jesus Lord of my circumstances? 
Is he master in whatever circumstances he has allowed to come my way? And do I recognize him as the Lord of those circumstances as well? And the answer is, yeah. While I'm at church. But too often the answer is no. When I get in the parking lot. And this afternoon. And the rest of the week. The Bible's assumption is that Christians will live different lives, radically different lives, that will prompt people to say what's different about it. And if that's never happened, dear friend, then we ought to step back and say, what's going on with me? What is it that I am not believing about God that is showing up in my attitudes, my words, and my behavior? James says that what we claim to believe needs to be put to the test. And that's why verse 3 of chapter 1 says the testing of your faith produces certain good things, produces perseverance, ultimately wisdom and maturity. It's the testing of your faith. And you'll remember that faith in your New Testament is the same word for belief. So it's the testing of what we believe. We can sing that God is great, but we can live as if he's not. And that's what's being tested. And the book that you hold in your hand is God's change agent. God's change project began when he gave us life through the word of truth, according to verse 18 of chapter 1. And so we should be then, according to the next verse, verse 19, eager to listen to this word through which we've been given life. But in order to do more than merely listen, we need the humility to see ourselves as we are, warts and all. And that's why the end of verse 21 says that we are to humbly accept the word that's planted in you. Now, two weeks ago, we saw from verses 22 through 25 that although the Bible's intended to help us change, That purpose is only achieved if we approach it with a desire to change. And verses 23 and 24 give this absurd illustration of someone who would approach a physical mirror and look at himself, seeing change that needs to be made, but then walking away without doing that which is necessary. But verse 25 gives us God's design for his word and the approach that we should take to it. It says, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And so I've called this message, you see at the top of your outline that was inserted in your program, how to change for the better. Because over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the Bible's speaking of its purpose being change for our betterment, change for the better. The Bible is intended for us to change for the better. But then the question is, how do I do that? And last week, we focused on the requisite humility necessary in order for us to take a full, intense look into the Word of God for the purpose of coming away changed. I want to spend this week and at least next week 
looking at how that happens then. How to change for the better. And this change is needed regularly in me and in you because sin has entered God's originally good world. The image of God needs to be gradually restored because the image has been broken. You all know that from the beginning of your Bible. That sin enters the world and everything is, is radically changed. And now Christ has entered the world to reorient his world to its original design. To restore you to what you were originally made to be. That's God's change project. And so change should be a regular part of the life of the one who has been transformed by Jesus and is being transformed by Jesus. But as a result of sin, as a result of the broken image, we are now susceptible to lies. Lies about ourselves, lies about God, and lies about His world. We believe, therefore, the wrong things. And in believing the wrong things, we think and say and do the wrong things. We not only believe the wrong things, we desire the wrong things. Today we're going to focus on things that we must believe, truths that we must rehearse in our minds in order for us to become like Jesus. Next week we're going to look at desires that we need to adopt. Today, what truths do we need to turn to in order to be changed in our behavior, in our thinking, in our words, in our actions? For instance, do I really grasp and believe the truth that Jesus is master, that Jesus is Lord? If I do, then that will have a profound impact on me. Because sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. Sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. Now I have a one-line quotation for you in the outline. Take a look. Therefore, because of that, because sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief, it is true that behind every sin and every negative emotion is a lie. So this week, you've been living with particular sin. In many cases, the same sins you dealt with the week before, the month before, the year before. And behind every one of those is a lie. And some of you have been dealing with negative emotions. Last week, the week before, month before, year before. And behind each of those is a lie. The root of all of our behavior and emotions is, according to the Bible, our hearts. What it trusts and what our hearts treasure. And we need to constantly be given to the truth, focusing on and re-examining those truths that need to be reinforced because we have believed a lie, and here's why. Since the entrance of sin into God's good world, this is what Scripture says, people naturally exchange the truth of God for a lie. In fact, the Bible warns us about the way we think, the things that we adopt as our beliefs. 
so that those are not the same as the world. Ephesians 4 says this, You must no longer live as unbelievers do. Notice, in the futility of their thinking, darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And so humanity's problem is futile thinking, darkened understanding, ignorant hearts. And the Bible says this is the cause of indulgence, impurity, misdirected desires. Hear this, friends. We sin because we believe the lie that we are better off without God. That God's rule is somehow oppressive. That we will be free without Him. That sin offers more than God. And this is true of every sin and every negative emotion. And so I may envy. I may steal. Or I may worry. See, you were okay till I hit worry, weren't you? I love it when he gets those thieves. I love it when he goes after those murderers. It's when he hits my sin that I hate it. But I may envy, I may steal, I may be anxious about money because I believe the lie that consumer goods give my life meaning. Or because I believe the lie that God doesn't care about me. I may commit adultery or get depressed about my singleness because I believe the lie that intimacy with another person will give me more than God can give me. Do you see, friends, that behind all of these is belief in a lie? And not many of us think of ourselves as people who believe lies. But we do it all the time. And behind every sin and negative emotion is one of those lies. Every time we don't trust God's Word, then we're believing something else. And that something is always a lie. If I get angry when I'm stuck in traffic, and I'm not going to mention the fact that Sandra Gorm was driving behind me t today and, and tailing me very closely because I was not going fast enough for her. So I, I won't mention that, Sandra, to anyone. We had a good laugh about it, but she said, you know, you really do need to speed up, all right? <laughs> and the truth is, she's right about that. But, you know, if I'm angry, Sandra was not angry once she recognized it was a pastor. She... <laughs> but if I get angry when I'm in traffic, think about it. I don't trust God to handle this delay. I believe the lie that God isn't control, in, in control in this situation. Or that His purposes for me are not good. If I overwork, I don't trust God, perhaps because I believe the lie that I need to somehow justify or prove myself. And we saw last week that can't be done. And so many of our negative emotions are sinful because they're symptoms of unbelief which is the greatest sin and the root sin. Whenever, friends, we are depressed or bitter, it's because we believe God isn't being good to us or that He's not in control. And the Bible says, everything that does not come from faith, belief, is sin. 
Now, there's belief and there's belief. There's confessional belief and there's functional belief. Confessional belief is, you know, our doctrinal statement. And you all can look at our doctrinal statement and you go, yep, I believe that. Yep, I, yeah, I believe all of that. There's confessional belief. But functional belief is how I live in light of what I claim to believe. And if I don't live during the week in light of what I said, yes, I believe Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, Jesus is my Savior, life is about Him, life is about His glory. If I don't live that way, I don't really believe that. Which then brings us to, you know, what's to be done about it? My job is not just to harangue you and tell you, you know, nobody's asked you whether you're a Christian, so you're lousy, and you should really feel bad. I don't, my job is not just to do that and leave it at that. That's part of it. And God is not interested in just telling us what all our problems are. But rather, our gracious God has given us a roadmap for life. He's given us light in the Scripture. He's given us a roadmap for us to follow. And so the Bible says in Proverbs 4, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. I'm going to read on. But, but sin puts us in this situation. You know, I'm in this darkness. I don't know how to get out of it. But God gives a ray of hope here. God says that the path of the righteous that I, God, provide for you is like a first gleam of dawn. And it will shine ever brighter if you take steps on that path. Now, how's that done? It goes on to say, my son, pay attention then to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your hearts. For they are life to those who find them, and health to a man's whole body. How am I going to take steps on this path? By believing the truth of God's Word. Be attentive to my words. Value them above all else. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. That's why God says of Holy Scripture, your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light for my path. So you may feel as though, because your experience has been, I have not changed in years. And I feel trapped in these negative emotions and this negative behavior, this sinful behavior, these sinful emotions. And God is giving you hope from His Word. It's a light for your path, for you to be removed from this darkness. But it is no wonder that we feel trapped because Jesus said, sin is a trap. That everyone who sins is indeed a slave to sin. But then He went on to say in that same chapter, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching." You're really my disciples. And then you will know the truth. And thanks be to God, the truth will set you free. 
the truth will set you free from those patterns of negative emotion and ongoing sin. And just as lies about God lead to slavery to sin, so the truth about God leads to the freedom of serving Him. The truth that sets us free, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, it's the, it's the gospel. And freedom is found in the truth that we were made to worship God and to serve God and to trust God. And freedom is found in acknowledging that, we're not respons- that, that we are responsible for the mess that we've made with our lives. And that our problems are rooted in our hearts. We deserve God's judgment. We're desperately in need of God. But it's found in accepting that God has provided what we need in the gospel through Jesus Christ. It's found in accepting God as in control of our lives. And that He's gracious and that He forgives those who come to Him in faith. Often we can identify the, the lies that we've believed, the truths that we failed to appropriate, and how those enslave us. If I'm enslaved by my worries, then what truth will give you freedom from that? If I'm enslaved by my worries, then freedom is found in trusting the sovereign care of my Heavenly Father. If I'm enslaved by the need to prove myself, then freedom is found in trusting that I'm fully justified in God's sight through the atoning work of Christ. And on it goes. With every sin, with every struggle you have, there's a truth that you need to believe and a lie that you need to forsake. Now, in your outline, I've given you four of those. Four broad truths with major implications for our everyday lives. Truths we must continually turn to. The first of these is that God is great. So I do not need to be in control. God is great, so I do not need to be in control. Now, is God great? Confessionally, yep. Y'all say, yeah, amen, God's great. But is he going to be great this afternoon or tomorrow? God is great, so we do not have to be in control. Traveling at the speed of light, and the speed of light is 186,000 miles a second, you would encircle the earth seven times in one second, pass the moon in two seconds. At this speed, it would take you... 4.3 years to reach our nearest star and 100,000 years to cross our galaxy. There are thought to be at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe. It would take 2 million light years to reach the next closest galaxy and 20 million to reach the next cluster of galaxies. And with that, you've still only begun to explore the universe. So I ask you, is God great? How did all of that come into existence? He spoke it into existence. And God controls every piece of it. That's the God you serve and who we say we believe is great. Friends, if we believe in that great God, how should that affect us with regard to the control of our everyday lives moment by moment? 
you know, I preach this stuff, and I have the same struggles you all do. I believe God's in control. I believe he brings things into my life to test me. And I can't believe how many times I fail the test. So last week I preached this need for change and the fact that the gospel is central to change. And then on Monday, Monday's a day we spend as a family. We go do stuff. We, I'm given a list of stuff to get done that I don't like. And so my... Uh, my wife and daughters said, hey, we purchased a volleyball net. You need to set it up in the backyard. All right. You know, God's in control. I'm clearly not. <laughs> so go set this thing up. And here's the thing. When, when I have to set stuff up, I like to be the one who buys it. Because I want to buy something that I can pound really hard into the ground. So as I'm taking this thing out, it's this kind of, it's this really hard plastic, you know, net, uh, poles and then the net. And I, right away I'm thinking, this is not going to be good. Because you do have to pound the stuff in the ground, and you pound a hammer on that stuff. And so I get something flat to pound it in with, and it's hot out there. And Lainey is helping me hold it in place. And she's watching her pastor father struggle with this. And then she says this. Do you want me to do it? <laughs> and I look up at her. <laughs> and she knows I'm not pleased with that question. But God has something in that moment, doesn't he? For me. Now, friends, I'm telling you that because every one of us, myself included, struggle with, yeah, God's in control, except when things don't go the way I want, which is a lot of the time. And so, Alan is sitting on the train. It's stopped just outside the station. He's getting angry because he's going to miss his hospital appointment. Is God in control in that moment? Beth is stressed. Replacing the family car has wiped out their savings. She's worried that they won't have enough money at the end of the month. When her husband comes home with an expensive-looking bunch of flowers to cheer her up, <laughs> she bursts into tears. Colin is getting very frustrated. He's trying to get a new community project going. Everything seems to be going wrong. And as a result, he's getting irritable now with the, the children. Dorothy's lying awake at night thinking about her friend Eileen. She seems to be slipping into postnatal depression. Dorothy's looked after Eileen's baby a couple times. But she has her own responsibilities. She wishes she could do more. Is God in control? Is God great in all of that? In Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 5, there are a number of episodes that Mark shares in the earthly ministry of Jesus that contrast God's greatness and our lack of faith, our fear. He does that by a storm that comes up. And by the casting out of a demon, out of a demon-possessed man. By healing a sickness and even by raising one from the dead. And the point in each of those stories, 
is that God is great. God can do anything. We need not fear. What happens when the disciples are with Jesus in the boat and the storm arises? They're afraid. And Jesus says, do you remember, O you of little what? Faith. You really don't believe I'm great. You really don't believe that I'm in control. And it's shown by your reaction. Jesus says, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life, O you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Four, and please don't miss the four. Here's why you don't worry about it. Four, because. That's what people who don't know me do. That's what the pagans do. It's not what you do. The pagan world ran, runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. God is great. It's a truth, friends, that you must remember, that you must refocus on, and, and lose the lie that God is not in control, and that you have to be in control. How do I change? By appropriating these truths of God's Word in the everyday moments of life. God is great, so we do not have to be in control. Secondly, God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. The Bible has much to say of the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what's less known is what the Bible has to say about something else, the fear of man. And I have on the screen for you Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. Now, what does it mean? Well, the fear of the Lord is being in awe, awed reverence of God. Yes, we, in His presence, will tremble because we're in such awe of Him. And thus the word fear. But we can be in awe of people. And being in awe of people will prove to be a snare, the Bible says. Fear of man has a number of symptoms. It's what makes us susceptible to peer pressure. It's what causes us to, quote, need something from our spouse that they're not providing. It's what gives us an over-concern with self-esteem or being over-committed because we can't say no. Why? Because we want to please people. Why do we want to please people? Because we revere them, we fear them. Fear of being exposed. Telling so-called small lies to make ourselves look good. People making us jealous, angry, depressed, or anxious. Avoiding people because we revere them too much. We're afraid of what they will think of us. Comparing ourselves with others. Fear of giving the gospel because we're afraid of what people will think of. On and on it goes. The fear of man, the reverence of man, the awe of man will prove to be a snare. But God is glorious. Therefore, we do not have to fear others. It's the fear of God. And reverence for God and awe of God and His glory, and all that He is. And by the way, that's what His glory is, all that He is. 
It is all of his character. And when you take all that God is, it is him and him alone in whom we should be in awe. And the fear of God is liberating. We can take people's expectations seriously, hear this, because we want to love them as God commanded, but we're not enslaved by people's expectations. We don't serve them for what they can give us in return, approval or affection or security or whatever it is. Because it is the fear of God that has captured our hearts. Now we can serve people as we're intended to do. By submitting to Christ's lordship, we're free to serve others in love. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. And God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. And here's a third truth. God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. I recently read of an elderly widow in Russia who's taken a job cleaning the stairwells of a grim apartment block. Her state pension covers her own needs, but she wants to earn extra money for missionaries working in Mongolia. Now, what makes somebody do that for people and for churches that she'll never see in this life? It's because she is living for a joy greater than the immediate. She's like the man that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 13, who finds treasure in a field, and Jesus says in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. You see, the invitation of the Bible to live for God and God's purposes is not an invitation to dreary abstinence from the joys of life. But it is an exchange for that which is only temporary happiness with that which is eternal joy. But the question is, do you believe God is good? And therefore, you don't have to look elsewhere. If you're looking elsewhere, guess what? You don't believe God's good. I've got to find it somewhere else. I've got to find it somehow else. But what does the Bible say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you believe that? Yep. On Sunday. But do you believe it this afternoon? And Monday? God is good. And He will graciously give you all things that you need. He will give you many things that you desire. And when we are in His presence, He will give us more than our hearts and our minds could imagine. This is our good God. You don't need to look elsewhere. You don't need to look in another relationship. You don't need to look for another place to live. You don't need to continue to change your circumstances as if somehow you're going to find your joy there. One of our problems, friends, is that we think only of moments. In the moment, we think the pleasures of sin are real, the joy of God is insubstantial or it's distant. 
But the truth of the matter is it's the other way around. Every joy we experience is but a shadow of the source of all joy, which is God. Marriage, for instance, is a reflection of the joy of union with God. Adultery is a distorted reflection. If you idolize marriage or you commit adultery, you've settled for less than the living water that Jesus said he gives in John 7. Sin is like the distorted reflection of a beautiful sunset that shifts with every movement of the breeze across the water. God's the sun itself in all its beauty and glory and energy. So what are the patterns of your life? Are the words for you, if only, a refrain? Is that something you say often? If only, fill in the blank. Then I could have joy. If you believe that, friend, you believe that God is not good because God is withholding that one or two or ten things that would truly give you joy. If only. Do you really believe God is good? And lastly, God is great and glorious and good, but God is gracious. So we do not have to prove ourselves. God is gracious, so we do not have to prove ourselves. We saw last week, and if you were not able to be here last week, I encourage you to listen to the recorded message. We do not have to prove ourselves to God because we can't. But Jesus has accomplished all that needs to be proven to God. And we are justified and innocent before God only because of Him. So we do not need to prove ourselves before God. We do not need to prove ourselves before others. Because I have acceptance, full acceptance with God, now I can be transparent and truthful with others. I can own it. I can say I was wrong. I can say I've sinned. I can say I messed up. And I can also be honest with myself. I don't have to prove myself to God, to others, or I don't have to prove myself to myself. The Bible says of our God, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Friend, behind every sin and negative emotion is a lie. And it starts with a lie about God. If we feel that we need to be in control or somehow God is not in control, we don't believe he's great. If we are in awe of others such that it's affecting our thoughts and our words and our, and our actions, we don't believe that God is glorious and he's enough in himself and therefore I need not be in awe of others because I'm in awe of him. If I feel like I have to have something, if only I had this thing or this person, then I do not believe God is good because He's withholding from me that which I need in order to have full joy. If I find myself proving myself in the words I speak, in the actions I undertake, I don't believe God is gracious and that Jesus has fully atoned for it. What truths do you need to appropriate in order to change? Next week we're going to look at desires that we need to adopt in order for us to change. The bottom of your outline, we have a take-home truth. God has given us his word for the purpose 
of changing us. And I said last week, we go through the ritual every Lord's Day, every Sunday. I get up, I talk, you listen, I guess. We leave, for many of us, not much happens, not much changes. God's Word was given for the purpose of changing us. And so this exercise that we go through every week, opening God's Word, looking at it together, is not designed to simply have a lecture, get more information. It is for us to be transformed by the truths of God's Word. You and I need to appropriate these four truths and all of the truths about God, ourselves, and His world in His Word in order for that change to occur. We're going to pray in just a moment. But the truth is you cannot do that on your own. You all heard me pray at the beginning. Lord, we need you to grant what you command of us. I don't have the power to do this. You have commanded me to believe. I don't have the capacity to believe other than by your grace. You've commanded me to do. I don't have the capacity to do other than by your grace. But that grace is all found to believe and to act in Jesus. And he who gave his own son will graciously give us all things. Let's ask him to help us then. Let's bow together. Father, we're thankful to you that you have not left us to grope in darkness, but quite the contrary, you have spoken, and you have given us in the pages of Holy Scripture a light and a lamp. Lord, your desire is for us, your design and desire for us is that we be conformed to your image. The image is distorted, the image is broken because of sin, and it's restored day by day and week by week. As we are sanctified by your truth, your word is truth. But in our sin, Lord, we are still susceptible to the lies. Still susceptible to the lies in the, in the small moments of traffic, setting up a volleyball net, and being snubbed or slighted as we perceive. Not in our unwillingness to seek forgiveness in our relationships. And to, and to keep short accounts and not go to bed while we are still angry. Lord, in so many ways we believe the lie. Oh Lord, we need your grace to help us to see you fully as you are. To see how great you are and how glorious you are, how good you are, how gracious you are. Help us, Lord God, to believe those truths in the depths of our hearts. And it cannot but help, help but transform us moment by moment and day by day. Lord, help us this afternoon to think about what we have discussed, to think about you and the truth about you and how it needs to change the way we think and talk and act. Help us to do that Monday through Saturday and bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.